Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. There we read, there shall come forth as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of the wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belts of his waist, faithfulness the belts of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the gaff and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play near the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Please be seated. On the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we have started somewhat of a tradition here. We have an Advent hymn sing, and it's a wonderful way to kick off the Advent Christmas season, one that I've grown to enjoy and look forward to. A part of that service, we have lessons from the hymns themselves, a time to reflect on these oftentimes very familiar hymns, and so so familiar, in fact, that oftentimes we forget the language and the theology and the scriptures that they portray and speak forth to us. And that is what I have found with these particular songs and really with all the good hymns of the faith, the ones that have stood the test of time, that they are rich in biblical language and theology. They're either directly quoting the scriptures themselves or alluding to them. And one of the lessons that came this year was a 16th century German hymn from the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. Our choir just sang it for us. Lo, how a rose air blooming. Did you hear what the first verse, that first stanza says to us? Lo, how a rose air blooming from the tender stem has sprung. Of Jesse's lineage, coming as men of old have sung. It came out floweret bright amid the cold of winter, when half spent was the night. Not only is this beautiful language, beautiful poetry, it's a direct quotation of our passage today. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. That this shoot, this 
tender stem has blossomed. And the author of this hymn says, has blossomed into a rose. A beautiful picture that this bright rose amidst the cold of winter, you can picture it, can you not? That you see, as at least I see it, this bright red rose with this wintry white backdrop. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that there in the the midst of the snow and cold of this world, to borrow a phrase from Narnia, in a land where there is always winter and never Christmas, an improbable life came forth. Not just any life, the life of the one and only. At this beautiful rose blooms and blooms even to this day. It goes on to say that this flower whose fragrance tender with sweetness fills the air and dispels the darkness and splendor everywhere. That the dark and the cold of this world is dispersed because of this rose, the blooming of this light. It's because of the light and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, beautiful poetry that accurately portrays Isaiah chapter 11. And what we've been seeing this Advent season as you've been with us is that these scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, here in the book of Isaiah, demonstrate who this Messiah was and will be. And how we have seen through it the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, both in his first coming and as we will see today in his second. Again, wonderful music does this for us. If you were with us this last Sunday night, then you were here for a treat with the choir's performance of Handel's Messiah. And what you probably noticed is that Handel's Messiah is almost exclusively the words of Scripture. That well over half of the musical offerings that were presented on Sunday night were direct quotations. And not just direct quotations, but direct quotations from the Old Testament itself. In other words, George Frederick Handel got it right. If you want to know Christ, then you must begin in the Old Testament. In a day and age where pastors are distancing themselves from the Old Testament, we along with the church fathers would say no. Without it, we do not know Christ. Without it, we do not know the fullness of his person and character. And that is exactly what we've been doing this Advent season as we've been looking at Advent through the eyes of Isaiah, or as we have entitled it, Isaiah's Christmas. Christmas B.C., Christmas before Christ. And this morning, as we turn to Isaiah chapter 11, we see a picture of a tree. And so we will look at it in three points, referring to this tree. The roots, the branch, and then finally, the everlasting tree of life. First, the the roots. Again, not to sound like a broken record, but all of these prophecies come in a historical context. In other words, they have a meaning When they were given, it had a meaning to the peoples of Isaiah's day. 
700 B.C. Although they would never see the ultimate fulfillment of these things, they were promises given to the people of God, not only in Isaiah's day, but throughout the ages and even to us today. And the immediate context of Isaiah is that the armies of outside nations are going to come in. And that they are going to destroy Israel. In fact, they have already destroyed the northern tribes when Isaiah writes this prophecy in 722 B.C. The ten tribes in the north were destroyed by Assyria. And later in 586, the Babylonians would come in and take out those other two tribes. In other words, the people of God, the people of the Old Testament are going to be cut off. And you might say, like those during Isaiah's day, well, how can that be? How will God fulfill his promises? Are God's enemies going to have the victory? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes, they would have the temporary victory. They would cut off the nation of Israel, but they would not have the ultimate victory. In other words, they would win the battle, but they would lose the war. And that is what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 11 as well. In fact, you have to back up a little bit into chapter 10. And Isaiah says that these nations that the Lord is going to use are going to triumph. They are going to be exalted, but only temporarily. In fact, they are also going to be Cut down. You see this in chapter 10, verse 33. It says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. He'll cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Again, using this metaphor of a tree, they exalt themselves as the greatest trees of the forest during that day. But Isaiah says, no, you too will be cut down. You will be cut off. And what will replace them? Well, we'd think, obviously, a more powerful, a more mighty tree than these nations. But that is not the picture that we have here first in Isaiah chapter 11, do we? What we see is a stump. A tree that has been cut. A nation that has been cut down. And the stump is referring to Israel. Israel here is likened unto this tree. And if you have a stump, then you have a dead tree, right? A tree that has no future, that has no life. Well, that's how it would seem. That's how it would be perceived. But that is not exactly true. I learned this the hard way. In my former house, we had a Bradford pear that got too big and then split down the middle. And so, trying to save some dollars, I decided to cut down this tree myself. But I decided to leave the stump because I thought, well, it'll die out. It'll eventually rot, correct? Well, no, it didn't. Every few weeks I was dealing with these shoots that were coming up out of this stump. Even though there was 
No trunk, there was no branches, there were no leaves remaining. There was still life. There was still life in the roots of this tree. And that is exactly the prophecy here of Isaiah, that even though Israel is cut down, it's a cut tree. It's been cut off. The roots have life. And what are those roots? Well, it's the promises of God. The promises that God made to our forefathers. Earlier we read from Matthew chapter 1, and you probably thought as I read that, wow, something's really gotten into the pastor. The season has become a little too much for him. I think he's lost his mind, or perhaps he has had too much eggnog. I don't know if it's the rum or if it's salmonella, but it must be something. Because no one reads Matthew chapter 1, at least the first 17 verses. We just skip over it to verse 18 where we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's the old familiar Christmas story as we know it. That's the good stuff, right? And while those first 17 verses, well, that's kind of like the the opening credits of the movie where you, you have time to kind of settle in, get your popcorn and your blankets for the story itself. But no, the first 17 verses are Scripture as well. And I admit it's not the most exciting portion of Scripture. But why is it there? Why is that the first chapter? Why is that the first verses of the Scripture of the New Testament? Well, Matthew is establishing a very important part of the Christmas narrative. He's rooting all that will be said about Christ in the past. And that way it's the perfect bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Matthew is saying, before we go forward, you have to understand everything that has taken place up to this point. And he begins, as you see, not with Adam like Luke does, but with Abraham. And then goes from Abraham to David, and then David to the Babylonian exile, and then from the Babylonian exile to Christ. And it says in verse 17 that there was 14 generations between each one, which demonstrates this beautiful symmetry, this beautiful order, that even in the midst of the Old Testament, as we read through it, we see what seems like chaos and disorder. We're reminded that God is sovereign. And that he is in control. And whereas I can't prove it, I think Matthew had Isaiah chapter 11 in mind. Rooting the lineage of Christ in the promises of God. Specifically the promises given to David and to Abraham. That specifically... That promise to Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth. And again, that promise to David that one of his own would be on the throne forever as the king. And so, putting Abraham and then David is pointing us to those figures, those mighty Old Testament figures. But even more importantly, the promises given to them. And then you might ask, well, why does he mention the Babylonian Exile. That doesn't seem like a, an event that you would really want to remember. 
Well, I think he mentions that because that's when the tree was cut down, right? That's when the stump was made. But that stump has life. Because those roots, those promises will come true, will flourish. And therefore, he demonstrates that by going on to say that after the Babylonian exile comes Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of those promises. That God will fulfill his promises, no matter how bleak, no matter how dark the circumstances might be. That even when the nation is cut off, God will be faithful. God will always keep his promises. And that is why I say all the time that we need to, we need to mark the promises of God. We need to hold on to them. Because those are the things that are true. Our circumstances are always changing. Our culture is always changing. Our life is always changing. But the promises of God are always true because they are rooted in the God who never changes. The God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This week, being with our dear sister Brenda, in one week's time, losing her mother and then her husband, all you have is the promises of God. That is the only thing that seems normal, that seems sturdy, that is a firm foundation for your feet is the Lord and his faithfulness in times like that. Well, that is the root. Second, we see here the branch from these roots, from the stump of Jesse will come this tender shoot. Again, an allusion to, I think, David's humble beginnings. That's why it mentions Jesse, which was David's father. Just as David came from the house and line of Jesse. And who was Jesse? Jesse was merely a sheep farmer in the outskirts of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. His only claim to fame was that he had eight sons. But it was the last of his sons, David, the least, the one that was forgotten by his father Jesse and overlooked by Samuel. That was the one that was chosen, the small shepherd boy. And we get that very important scriptural principle, do we not, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the hearts. And that is exactly what we have with Christ as well. We see as we read the New Testament, the very humble beginnings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Born in Bethlehem, born where there was not even room or preparation for him. Out back in the barn in a feeding trough for animals. The promised one, the Christ child was born. Born to a teenager girl and a carpenter boy. That is where the Light made its dawning, made its first appearance as a shoot, as a tender stem from the stump of Jesse. The Lord Jesus sprung forth unbeknownst to mankind, only told to those that God revealed it, revealed to shepherds, 
keeping their watch at night. Perhaps a tip of the hat to David, the shepherd, and his humble beginnings. But we know, do we not, that throughout the scriptures themselves, that God's eyes are always upon the humble and upon the least. Those that are not haughty, but those that keep their eyes fixed upon Jehovah. That he brings low the wicked and those that exalt themselves. We read this even in this passage in verses 3 and verses 4. That he will not decide cases, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall slay the wicked. And what we have here in Isaiah chapter 11 is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that he will be known? Well, he won't be known primarily by his outward characteristics, his outward appearance. Yes, he will be a king, but you will not know that he is a king by his long robe or his large crown, or the abundance of wealth and possessions. No, rather, you will know he is the one, the chosen one, the king, by his character. As it says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and godliness shall come forth from him. As it says, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That these are the ways that God establishes his reign, his kingdom, his righteous rule. And that is how God is still establishing his rule and reign this day. It's not through power. It's not through prominence. It's not through prestige. It's not through rule or might or a dominance over other people. But rather, it's through humility and service and faithfulness that God is extending his kingdom. In other words, through the least of which. And that is what he is calling us to as well as we join in in that kingdom building. We don't go out in power or strength. We don't go out saying, look at how great we are. Don't you want to be like us? No, that's how the world portrays itself. No, we go out through our love and through our kindness, through our service. That's what we're called to be as disciples of Christ, to pick up our cross to lay down our life and to follow Christ in humble obedience. And remember, that is what Matthew is trying to teach us as well in his book. As I said at the very beginning, I think he's alluding to those promises, promises given to Abraham and to David. And then at the very end, the the bookend, what does Matthew end with? He ends with the Great Commission. And do you see how those promises are coming to fulfillment? As Christ says to his disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the king. 
in fulfillment of the Davidic promise. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Bless all nations in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And how are we going to bless all the nations by making other disciples through the teaching and preaching and baptizing? That it's this work that God is establishing, that is branching out his kingdom. And so we must not miss this, that Isaiah and Matthew are saying that Christ is at work, that that branch is going out and has been ever since he ascended into heaven and gave that great commission. That Christ's kingdom is branching out even now throughout the world to the very ends, to the corners of the earth as he says from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west and he is blessing the nations through the extension of his kingdom, through the power of the Holy Spirit and he is using you and me to do so. Through our humility, through our service, through our witness. Yes, Christ started out as a a humble little stem But now his kingdom is becoming a mighty oak, like a giant redwood in the California forest. And so we can't miss what is being said, or we have missed our purpose. That the march goes forward, even here in Smyrna, Georgia, and around the world. And he is using us, he's using our church to do so. It's so easy to, to navel gaze, so to speak, and to be fearful and to be intimidated at the world and to stay in our holy huddles, to kind of just hold on and, and brace for the worse. I think what this scripture would say, no, we are to be on the march, humbly, not on a crusade, but through our service, through our love, through our witness, being reminded that King Jesus is still Upon his throne. And nothing happens in this world that is a surprise to him. And therefore we must be faithful to him. We're to make disciples of all the nations. We're to bless the nations. And how are we to do that? Well, the elders have put forth a a challenge to us all. A vision of what we as a church want to be. And we put it into those simple phrases. It's it's got a lot fuller expression. But we know it as to, to, to know Christ to grow in Christ and to show forth the love of Christ. Do you see how this passage has a a very similar theme to it? That we have the the roots, that is to know. We have the branch, which means to grow. And then we have the, the blossom, the fulfillment, which demonstrates how we are to show forth what is taking place in our life and through the life of our church. And the leadership of the church, the elders and deacons can give suggestion along these lines, and we hope to. But this needs to come from the the ground up. In other words, this needs to be rooted in your own hearts. And this needs to come forth from the knowledge of Christ that you have. That desire to grow, that desire to show forth the love of Christ to our community and to our world. And so I want to put out a personal plea to you. 
as we conclude this year, as we begin to look forward to a, a new year, perhaps that this would be your personal resolution, that you would adopt this purpose, this vision, and that you would think about how can I do this individually? How can my family know and grow and show forth the love of Christ to the world? And how can we do so as a church, as a corporate body of, of Christ? That this year would be that springing forth from root to branch to blossom. Because this passage would say that we should have all the confidence in the world. Because that branch is great. And that branch is mighty. And that branch springs forth fruit unto everlasting life. This is exactly what Jesus says that the kingdom should be like. When he says in a parable in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It's the smallest of the seeds, Jesus says, but when it has grown, it's larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ came from those humble beginnings as a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, that has sprung forth to be the greatest tree in the forest. And so finally, we see here this everlasting tree of life put forth for us here in Isaiah chapter 11. And as we close out Isaiah's Christmas, it's right for us to join with him in that future expectation. Everything that Isaiah has said up to this point, all those passages that we looked at in Isaiah 7 and and then two weeks in chapter 9 have been things that have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the end of this passage, verses 6 through 9, we are waiting along with Isaiah. We join with him side by side for what is yet to take place. And what we see here is a scene that is almost idyllic, almost too good to be true. true. A land that is at peace. A land without sickness. A land without sin. A land without death. No violence. True peace on earth. And it's displayed in pairings that are usually known as adversaries to one another. A wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a young goat, a calf and a lion, a cow and a bear, an infant and a cobra, a child and a den of snakes. These things don't normally go together. They're not two things that you want to put together in the same room because it will not go well for one of them. But it says here they do. Here they lie down together. There is no harm. There is no danger. There is nothing threatening. Can you imagine a world like this? In other words, a world that is as God created it to be. The world as it was in the Garden of Eden. This is all pointing forward to the completion of redemption. In other words, if you think Christmas is 
merely about a child being born as a baby, then you've missed the purpose of Christmas. It came to restore the earth. It came for his blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. He came to bring heaven to earth. But as we close out, let us be reminded at what cost. For us to have heaven, Christ had to take hell. And he did so on the cross. For us to have this tree that's portrayed here in Isaiah chapter 11, Christ had to come and give of himself, give of his body, give of his life on the cursed tree, the wooden cross. He took death so that we might receive the tree of life. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden, there was not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was also the tree of life. That tree, I think, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture that is given to us here in Isaiah chapter 11. And we must receive the fruits of that tree. And so as you come this day, Perhaps you come today with family. Perhaps you're not a member of this church. Perhaps you don't normally come to church. The greatest gift that you can receive this day is the tree of life. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because what Christ came to do was to give peace between God and man. And even though Isaiah doesn't mention that pairing... That is a pairing that we know will take place in the new heavens and the new earth. That God will truly dwell with man. That mankind that is sinful and is at odds with the holy God are made one. Are made to have peace. Made to dwell with God forever in everlasting life. That's what Christmas is all about. That heaven came to earth. So that one day earth will be transformed into heaven. And the new heavens and the new earth. That there will no longer be a separation between the two. But the fullness of peace and goodwill towards men will be on all and in all. And even so we say with Isaiah, come quickly, Lord Jesus And so as we close out these passages, as we've looked at the first advent, it is right for us to look forward to the second advent, to the second coming of Christ, because there, and only there, do we have a complete view of Christmas. The complete picture, the song of redemption in its fullest form. Again, if you were with us last Sunday night, then you notice that the last song was the famous Hallelujah Chorus. But if you cornered Jim in the choir, they would tell you that's not technically where the Hallelujah Chorus goes and handles arrangements. And it's to go at the end, and they were only doing the beginning, the first portion. But you understand why they included it. Who goes to a Messiah's performance without hearing the hallelujah chorus? It'd feel incomplete. It would feel lacking. 
that something is missing that is not there that should be. And it is a fitting end to a wonderful piece of music that talks about Christ's coming and his life and then his coming again. And that is what the Hallelujah Chorus is pointing us forward to. That from his incarnation to his death, to his resurrection, to his coming again, should lead us to praise, should lead us to doxology, should have us saying again and again, hallelujah. And how can it not, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, that from this tender shoot, from the stump of Jesse came, to become the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords, to usher in this peace, the peace to the ends of the earth. It's in this that we rejoice. It's in this that we have joy. It's in this that we are glad. And we continue on in that hope and in that work until he comes back again. Again, the very last verse of Lo, how a rose air blooming changes from singing about the rose to singing and praying to him. And the last stanza goes like this, and I hope this will be your prayer as you contemplate Christmas this season. O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe, O Savior, King of glory, who does our weakness know, bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven. And to the endless day. To that we say hallelujah. Come quickly. Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father. We thank you for the picture of this glorious and majestic tree. The tree of life. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord we pray that we would eat of its fruits this day. That we would. Receive your peace and joy and kindness and love through the offer of the gospel, the offer of salvation that is given to all, to all those that confess of their sins, that confess of their need and want and desire of you. Lord, we pray that you would fulfill that, perhaps for some very first time, and for all of us again and again, until we would see and receive that tree of life, everlasting, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for it. In Christ Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.